0: I was twenty when it happened. It was a dark autumn night on the banks of the River Elbe, the coal fires of Hamburg's stolid and crumbling tenements adding their chemical tang to the evening's damp mist. I'd been handed my match ticket as we left Feldstrasse U-Bahn station and then headed up the stairs in a one-way throng. Everyone around me was singing, stamping, and letting fall emptied cans of Holsten. They rattled percussively on the walkways. Through the turnstiles, with a creak, mumbled thanks, a drop of fagash, and half a ripped ticket pushed back. Then up the dozen steps and into the Nordkurve, just as Hans Albers' Auf der Reeperbahn started to splutter and crackle through the megaphone speakers, fixed to the overhanging roof of the main stand and the stanchions. Smoke and steam rose from the crowd, thousands of shining eyes turning towards the dew-speckled field as kickoff grew near. Someone brought me a bratwurst, with a ripple of sweet mustard along its glistening top edge and a foaming beer in a plastic glass. Just then, the teams ran out, a roar went up, a floodlight failed, and everybody laughed. I laughed too, so lad I almost spat out some sausage. So this is football, I thought, and everything changed.
1: That was an extract from the brand new, wonderful book, Square Peg Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, by Ned Bolting published by Bloomsbury, priced at 14 dollars 99 and available from the When Saturday Comes shop and other booksellers. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. Please consider becoming a member of the When Saturday Comes supporters club on Patreon. From just two dollars a month, which is around one pound fifty five, you'll get access to bonus episodes and material plus exclusive merchandise. Find out more by heading to patreon.com slash when Saturday comes. Anyway, that's quite enough from me. Time to hit play. Welcome to this post Christmas When Saturday Comes podcast. What a Christmas day it was as well. The Queen banning V A R. That was <laughs> remarkable, wasn't it? You didn't see that coming, did you? <laughs> really didn't see it coming. I didn't see you
2: putting seven
1: midget gems in your mouth before we started recording. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's
2: right, and I'm, I'm still I'm still pleased that I've still got some of these matchmakers left. Oh, that from quality the previous street podcast that we recorded. Yeah. Yes, the quality street new <laughs> <laughs> limited edition maple and bacon. Ma- that's right, maple and Pekin in the attractive blue sky mm. blue box. And mix. where are
3: they available? They're
2: available at all
3: good sweet shops. Hurry, hurry now, though it's a limited edition. It is a limited. Yeah. edition. I don't know
2: how limited it is. It no. doesn't actually say. I think it's. I think this is. I think this is number three hundred and seventeen. Well, five hundred. So lucky to get it. Really. Is it signed by? It's signed by the ma- the, the matchmaker <laughs> himself. <laughs>
1: himself. The chief
2: matchmaker. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> They'll be in Poundland by March then. That's right. I was, I'm getting through. It actually was in part of my selection box. Obviously that I got that I got on Christmas, the stocking shaped selection box. <laughs>
1: well, here we are. Some Christmas football has hopefully happened, and we are going to continue with the when Saturday comes half decent chatter. Beginning Andy with a question for you, have you ever been at a record-breaking game?
3: Well I've been at several, um, I was at one of Leighton Orient's uh, record wins, they beat Colchester 8-0 around 1988, in fact the previous year they'd won a game 8-0 as well, after this game against Colchester, the Colchester manager got sacked um, pretty much um, after the game, Leighton Orient fans, there was a group of uh, people I was with who stood outside, the you could hear the, the Colchester dressing room but you out on the street you could... Back the part of the stadium where the dressing was, we were trying to listen to see if they could hear any shouting. He'd gone very quiet, but he did get dismissed afterwards. My other memory of that game is that somebody I was with spilt some uh, coffee on my lap, and we were trying to work out what country it looked like a map of as it, as it <laughs> gradually spread out. We decided in the end, because there's sort of steam rising off of my crotch, that it looked like one of those supercontinents with a land bridge across the Bering Strait. <laughs> <laughs> That's my other memory of that is smelling really badly of coffee. Um, I saw um, Sutton United beat Coventry City, which is the Second to last time today date that a non-league team has beaten um, a top division team in the FA Cup, um, Sutton Coventry 1989, uh, then saw Sutton's game the next round when they lost um, 8-0 at Norwich. Um, the uh, uh, Coventry team, of course, including uh, Brian Kilcline, oh, about yeah, uh, whom Brian, we, yeah. have, we have a few stories. Um, mine is that <laughs> there's, I think we both have one and have, we have a combined one we about have, Brian yeah. Kilcline, which is slightly going off topic, but anyway, we're on it now. So um, somebody once wrote in and said they were sat in a train, um, carriage and seats opposite Brian Kilkline himself and his man. They kept looking over at Brian Kilkline because they recognized him. Brian Kilkline evidently eventually got fed up and said in a loud voice, Yes, I am Brian Kilkline. But there were two old ladies sat next to him who obviously didn't know who he was. So, f- as far as they were concerned, this, this manager said his name in a loud voice and so they, they kind of were very wary of him for the rest of the journey, he kept glancing <laughs> over at him. Why has he said that? He's you know? got a large,
2: intimidating figure yes. as well. My last story about his a friend of mine who's a, who's a TV producer went to interview him about his time at Newcastle and found that he was living on a houseboat with his wife, Lynn, and a collection of mannequins. <laughs> and so I had to interview this, you know, the sort of fearsome centre-half surrounded by mannequins. And, I, and when I was going to tell this story, I thought, oh, I wonder if that's actually, you know, someone's told me, so I don't know whether it's true or not. So I looked up um a Brian Kilcline Houseboat. And I found that he's no longer li- he did live on a houseboat, whether with mannequins or not, but he's now living in a house in Homeforth with a nine foot long metal dragon and his wife Lynn. And so he he's, a, he's he actually sounds like a, he sounds like he'd be a good person to me. He sounds like a good character. And
3: he also has various other metal sculptures uh, hanging around the house. And our, our combined Brian Kilcline experience, we were we were at a game in Newcastle Newcastle Swindergam, in the early nineties, and there's a group of um, guys standing ahead of us in front of us who were being fairly abusive during the game to pretty much everybody uh, including Brian Kilcline who was then playing for Newcastle and there's a guy stood next uh, we hadn't heard from standing next to us who said very they were kind of abusing Kilcline this guy just said he's all right in my book like that <laughs> and the, the guys in front didn't look round and they carried on sort of talking they talk, started talking to this guy but without looking at him and this guy also said again very quietly turn around and face us then like that and they didn't and then we were kind of think oh something's going to happen was a, the <laughs> guy was, he
2: was that sort of thing where when someone invites violence in a quiet way yeah, you think, think yeah. oh this thing, yeah. <laughs> oh dear yes, and the, but those those bullets were like they were like they were like people who'd read viz comic and thought, we're Geordies, that's how we (laughs) should be. There was no one, it was on the Gallagher end, and literally their behaviour, no one joined in with it at all. People just looked at them, sort of slightly horrified at their sort of sexist shouting and stuff, and the way that they were going, and it was really like, the bloke really was like, he'd, he'd read Sid the Sexist, and taken that as some kind of role model, you know, so he, yeah, it was a, that was a, yeah, it? Was a so Brian
3: Brankle Clan's honour was defended um, yep. fairly, fairly emphatically by y- the y- quietly <laughs> spoken big man standing next <laughs> to us. Who
1: maybe he was actually an author and he had written a book in which he said Brian Kilcline is a good player. Maybe he was the
2: author of the Newcastle
1: United A Complete History.
2: He could have been it. Well, if he is, he's, uh, he's not a
3: man you'd want to have a fight with at an author's lunch. That he would, I would leave him alone. Um, the only other thing, I, fun I can think of, I saw what I, I think was the the biggest penalty shooter ever in a major. Final, which is African Nations Cup in nineteen ninety two, Ivory Coast beat Ghana eleven ten, after a pretty much, a very forgettable game has to be said, but a fantastic penalty shootout. What's the record
1: attendance you've been ever been at a one hundred thousand pluser, which mm. isn't even a phrase. I <laughs> wonder. Oh, no, I
2: like the idea that he's a hundred thousand pluser. <laughs> um, I don't think I have actually. No, I, I, think, no, I don't think so. think so. It's
1: probably not going to happen to you very soon with the Northern League path you're on. No,
2: no. I think I'll, I'll be looking more at a hundred pluser. <laughs> I've been at a few hundred pluses. <laughs> <laughs> i've certainly quite a regulated 100 plus but my record breaking game is um i didn't think i'd actually been to any record breaking games and i look back i look back I cast my mind back all the way back to 1998 yet again um and toulouse in 1998 and uh, south africa versus denmark i was at and the game was a fairly dull. It was a one-one draw, but in the second half, the, the referee was a Mr. a Mr. Rendon of Colombia. It was for some reason it was the only World Cup game that he ever refereed, and Alfred Fieri from South Africa got a, one yellow card, and then he got a second one three minutes later, and was I think that's the record. For anyone to be sent off for two yellow cards in the World Cup finals. Although obviously people listening, they want to look that up, bury themselves in the record books and find out whether that's true. And Miklos Molnar came on as a substitute for Denmark in the 58th minute and got a red card in the sixty-sixth
3: minute. That's an incredible memory you've got there. It is. It? It's
2: incredible. I know. Yeah. I just. I just. I, I think this is right. People can check. I'm just off the top of my head. Just riffing. I'm just. You know. I'm just. You know. This is what I'm thinking. This is how I recall it. Anyway, sent off. So that was. So he was only on the field for eight minutes. And then the guy I was sitting next to is a guy called Adam Porter. He's. I think he worked for Loaded. Anyway, we were sort of speculating. Is that the the shortest time that anyone's ever been on the field to be sent off? And then in the eighty-second minute. Approximately. Approximately. Morton Vicourt came on and he got a red card in the eighty fifth minute. So he was only on for three minutes. Which I think must be a record for a substitute sending off. Although people may point out that Claudio Canigia was showing a red card for swearing at the referee while sitting on the bench. And actually in the World Cup that he never played in at all.
3: Oh, but
2: anyway, so that was my, that was my record breaking that was my record breaking game. As I recall it, but I may be wrong. There is a thrill in subs getting sent off. And ditto subs getting
1: subbed. That's a, a rarity I like to spot as well. I, yeah.
3: I also saw um, a physiotherapist sent off once in a non-league game, Tooting and Mitcham against, I can't remember who it was they were playing. And as he ran on, the, the Tooting fans thought the opposition player was feigning injuries. As the physio ran on, he sort of flicked the Vs at the fans, and the referee sent him off before he could get to the player. Then the player got up anyway. A, a friend of mine who was
2: a referee in the Northern Alliance once sent off a spectator. Because he heard the the guy was standing next to the bench, and he was obviously he was wearing some kind of sort of replica top. But I don't know, like a North, maybe it was like a Newcastle top, and the team that played in black and white. And he swore at the ref. So my, my friend went over and showed him the red card. And he said, "You can't send me off. I'm a spectator." But he felt like at that level of football, he's as he said, "If you show any weakness, <laughs> you, you dog me." So he said, "I think if you check the regulations rule, you just made up some yeah. rule." You'll see that I'm, I'm entirely empowered to send you off, and so the guy sort of had to trip off back to the back to the sort of clubhouse and spend the rest of the game watching the racing with everyone else in the warmth. In the warmth, oh yes, that was some yeah. punishment for him.
1: Not the only act of grand larceny you've seen in the Northern Leagues. I believe you know about the team that had its pitch stolen.
2: Oh, there you go. Well, it's, again, it's sort of it was it was uh, Willington, um, which a, a team that had previously, I think, been managed by both. Malcolm Allison and Alan Durbin. Quite extraordinary, really. And um, they, they bought... It it, sound, it sounds quite dramatic that they had their pitch stolen, but actually what had happened was that they'd had a lot of turf delivered to relay their pitch, and so the turf was stolen. Because it was kind of nice to think that the police were looking searching the gardens of county durham look oh there's a pe- that's the penalty spot where did spread you get- them around wouldn't you where, where did you get this from <laughs> you know but oh a man just came with a lorry and said you know we, we, we're in your we're in your area turfing <laughs> we've got some turf left over would you like us to re-turf your garden and you know and it had the center circle on it so yeah so that was the story is willington and i'm not i think it may be apocryphal but uh,
3: was it also in the Northern League where a club got around the fact they didn't have a roof on a stand by giving, giving everybody an umbrella. That so was so yes, that was, again, the- that was again.
2: That was a Peter Lee, I think. And the, the FA have these regulations that you have to have a certain amount of covered yeah. standing, and so they thought they could get around it by giving giving fifty spectators golfing umbrellas. Um, which the FA so apparently technically didn't. undercover cover. Exactly, that they were they had covered standing because yeah. they were under an umbrella, but the FA didn't take kindly to that sort of thing because the FA is always while I can't really control the top level of football, they can really bully the lower level of football. So you know there's a, right right and they have um, their covered standing is basically like all bus shelters just in a row, you know, so you can stand in a whole, there's about there's about five bus shelters, just one after the other that you can stand under.
1: Andy, I felt in the last few days over Christmas that I've basically retired, but then thinking also about players that retire young, but are still legendary names to fans of a certain age. These heroes, these ghosts that retire in their late 20s, but live on in the pub chat, in the pubs and clubs of the North East and the rest.
3: Yeah, uh, well, I, I heard this story about, which it's kind of a poignant tale, really, somebody who went who was at a sports centre in Essex, and the manager of the sports centre was called John Ayres. Now, for West Ham fans of a certain age, John Ayres was going to be the George Best. He had his own song uh, to the tune of Gingang Gooli, 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 Watcher. Uh, we've got Johnny, Johnny, Johnny Ayres on the wing, on the wing. I'm not going to, as you can tell, I'm not going to sing it. Um... <laughs> And he played about 50 games for West Ham in the early 70s, got a bad tackle from Ron Harris in the Chelsea game, came back, was never quite the same again, um, drifted, played for Wimbledon in non-league and ended up retiring when he was about 23. But it must be strange for him, because he's one of those players who he might not have become a legendary player, but he would have had at least another 10, 12 years um, playing football. Instead... If anybody was to ever meet him in his regular job, who'd been a West Ham fan, they'd, he would inst- they'd instantly think, Johnny Eris." But it must be odd to be to have like four or five years as a as a, as a, a, a sort of famous player and then go back to having a regular mm. life. You know, I mean, Peter Knowles is the other a, a name that crops up a lot in this case where he's, he was better known player than Johnny Eris. He played for England in the 23s and the late sixties, Wolves striker who became a Jehovah's Witness and he stopped playing when he's about. 22, 23? But Wolves kept his registration, so he used to be listed in Rothmans every year till he was, I suppose, about 35 or something, and they hoped that he might one day come back, but they only... Times people saw him around Wolverhampton was where he and another guy doing the Jehovah's Witness thing going door to door to try and persuade people to.
2: Was it was there not a player at Luton a Danish player
3: who? Yes, went, Lars Elstrup, I who joined was Lars a, Elstrup, a, I was a, a religious cult. It. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what it was a religious cult. A strange thing, religious yeah. culture, yeah. Yeah,
2: and then there was a guy who signed for West Ham. Who dis- boogers? Yeah, he, who disappeared and then was found living in a caravan. Living in a
3: caravan, yeah. But that, that's not that, that wasn't the same. That wasn't the, wasn't like a Johnny Evers Peter and Holes. No, thing. no, but, but, a, but Lars Elstrup an unusual Harry Redknapp signing, if such a thing yeah, is. Yes, can so be he, yes,
2: but <laughs> Lars Elstrup that one because he was a, yeah. you know he was a fantastic player, yeah. wasn't he? But did he leave? Did he did he sort of leave his career? Was his career over when he? Yeah, he'd
3: moved back to Denmark oh, and right, kind okay. of joined us. thing, but. The, I, especially also yeah, if the player carries on living in the area, it, you know, and, and has a reg- maybe still goes back to the club a bit, but hasn't hasn't had the whole career mm-hmm. as a footballer, it must be a, an odd.
1: It's a huge a thing,
3: hugely really psychologically
1: damaging thing, I imagine. But yeah. I can't stop thinking about the ex-player selling Bibles door to door, or whatever it is the Jehovah's do. I've never answered the door. Yeah. But I just wondered if he if you would pretend it wasn't him when someone tried to talk about his football. Well, look, well the story we we had the good
3: news. We had a story about that about Peter and I was in when Saturday comes once where somebody opens the door and it's him and they find themselves saying, oh sorry, no, I, you know, I can't, I don't believe it <laughs> and they close the door and they're kind of watching and Peter Knowles walk down the, the front path and close the and they think, oh you know, I used to see him when he was going to potentially be an England player could have been the 1970 World Cup squad. Peter Knowles himself said at some point that he he felt he couldn't be a footballer anymore because he knew he had a violent temper, an explosive temper and he didn't, He felt that he might injure somebody and I don't think at this point obviously he'd got interested in religion to some extent and that's what made because i suppose you wouldn't necessarily have to stop playing if you were a jehovah's witness i don't know but that combination of his, his sort of fear about his not being able to control his temper and the fact that he'd um i think you could activist. play
1: on ford super sunday couldn't
2: you? <laughs> i think, I think I, because i remember that when i was at infant school they were jehovah's witnesses and they they were they took part in the games but they didn't yeah. they weren't they didn't come into the um the survey, the morning, you know, morning prayers yeah. or whatever you called it. You know, the morning assembly they didn't come into when they were and hymn practice. And now they're just standing. They around sat in the Secretary's office, which again seemed like a better bet than doing yeah. hymn practice with Mrs. Harbottle. I can assure you. <laughs> anyone would have sat it out. And now they it's to be found outside
1: most mainline railway stations in the country. Yeah, it, it seems. Perhaps he's among
3: them. I don't know. Has he passed away now? No, he's still around. Um, I think he, he, his older brother was Cyril Knowles. I was going to say it was Played Cyril Knowles' brother,
2: wasn't he? Yeah, and, and was you know was a sort of manager of Hartlepool, wasn't he? he was very, and Darlington was very successful and died again, died young of the yeah, yeah. When you mention
1: school, it reminds me of the kids at school who were so much better than everyone else and yet still didn't make it. Yeah, and, yeah.
3: And there's a tiny fraction of of kind of the star schoolboy players who go on to make it, star players when they're kind of 14, 15. And again, another thing that must make it really difficult if you don't make it, because every point in your career, from when you're, you're being told from when you're probably primary school age that you're going to be good enough to make it, you get to the point you get to maybe 17 and you get released, like, which might explain why... often. On the face of it, it seems strange that there are loads of young players who are on the books of, say, Man United or Liverpool who just disappear altogether. But maybe it's a huge blow to their confidence. You know, they don't even end up playing in League Two. They just drop out football altogether or they play a fairly low level of non-league because that huge drop-off between expecting they're going to make it for years and then the, being told they're going to be released, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean,
2: I remember going to the, uh, the Youth Cup final when Middlesbrough played Spurs and the Spurs team, Sol Campbell, was it, so that's that's under sort of 18s and under, isn't it? It's Sol Campbell... And Darren Caskey were playing for Spurs. But of the Middlesbrough team, probably Ian Arnold was the centre forward who played for Carlisle for a couple of seasons. But I don't think there was a single member of the Middlesbrough team who ever really had a kind of professional career. So it is, there's a sort of massive wastage after that. You know, to be the best, to be one of the best 18-year-old footballers in the country actually means... Very little. I mean, you know, it's a kind of surprising. I was going to I was going to talk about a little bit because he's a bit of a sad story. Stephen Bell, who I remember at Middlesbrough. You know, made his Middlesbrough debut as a sixteen-year-old, and he, you know, was absolutely brilliant. Played eighty odd games. Um, played in, at, in a game at Charlton. That was Alan Simonson made his debut for Charlton and Middlesbrough won like three the Borough won three two I think they were 3-0 up at half time, and Bell was sort of like the most outstanding player on the field by miles but I mean by the by the age of twenty his career you know mm. his, his contract was terminated so you know he was so that's you know it was, was that was a very sad story with him.
1: Mm. The other Middlesbrough one, and we can only apologise for over Middlesbrough
2: ing in this podcast, is Alan Comfort. I was going to bring him up as a man who went into religion after yes, leaving the game. Yeah,
1: he found the cloth.
2: Yeah, he's quite an evangelical Christian. Actually, was I think was moved from a parish in Essex for refusing to bless a gay marriage. So, you know. That, that's brought this cheery set. <laughs> that's <do>. right, <laughs> you yeah. know. Yeah, I'd like to cheer everyone up with a story there, good.
3: <laughs> for that post Christmas lull. That's right. <laughs>
1: Handily and seamlessly, we've got a question from one Mark Sanderson, a Patreon subscriber, thanks to him. What was the highlight of Andy and Harry's playing days? Even if they never made it to their school team's starting 11, their interest in the game must have inspired them to at least try and play at some point. And therefore, there must have been a certain moment, maybe even bad, that sticks in the memory.
3: Um, well, I, used to, I was mostly uh, a fullback. Um, I was reasonably quick and I was okay at crossing and taking corners. and I quite liked, usually, the star player on the other team would be a winger, so it was nice to just sort of annoy them, well, just try and nick the ball off them, that kind of stuff. But in one game, um, I was, at primary school, I was played up front instead and I scored six goals. We won 9 3. I think it's just one of those freak things because I wasn't used to playing up front and people didn't expect me to be any good. <laughs> in those but I actually missed one of my goals. I took a corner, which I shouldn't have been taking because I'd already scored about four, but I should have been in the <laughs> cent- in the centre. Took a corner, mishit it completely, turned away in annoyance I'd mishit it, but the goalkeeper apparently fumbled it and they went straight in and I didn't see it. Would have been my my best f- flute goal ever. After that, I was tried up front a couple of times and, and really was. it wasn't my best position. I wasn't really... So sort of strong enough, and I moved back to fullback again, where I was happier. But for a, a week or so, I, I started to think maybe I could be a centre forward after all. But then that was sadly shattered.
1: A whole week
2: of dreaming. Yes.
3: Yeah, my, 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 I went to a very small Quaker school where you couldn't really have
2: avoided being in the first team football. It, you know, I, I don't know. There was only there was only like about fifteen boys, and but for some bizarre reason, our first eleven played in the Teesside side schools league. Now, people will know that Quakers are committed to pacifism and non-violence, and I can assure you that pacifism and non-violence <laughs> found no place in the Teesside Schools League in the 1970s. And we were in the second division. Um, there, were only, there were only two divisions, and there was no relegation out of it. And we used to. the most fearsome game was to play St Mary's, which is the big um, Catholic sixth-form college, which my mum went to school. It used to be Newlands Convent. And it's up in sort of Salters Gill, sort of Grove Hill, around that bit where Brian
3: Clough was from. For those of you who know, Middlesbrough.
2: For so it's where well Grove Hills, where Brian Clough's from, so it's that sort of area. So you know, and so we used to, And Saint Mary's in the in the first division, Saint Mary's A would be top, and Saint Mary's B would be, bottom, you know, because I don't know that something like Roman Catholic schools are the hotbeds of football, you know. And and then in the in the second division where we played, the C team were top, and the D team was second. And when you played the C team, I remember once playing against them out there, out away, and they were something like they were beating us something like twelve nil. And I remember their captain saying to the referee, who was their games teacher, "Can, can you just could you would you just end it now? Because then we can get the bu- we can get the earlier bus." <laughs> <laughs> just thought that's like he was like, "There's no point in carrying on. No, we've proved our point. I should say that they weren't violent at all. Though. They were just really, really good at football. And and so that so my football career was basically... Because my school cricket team, which I played in, were actually quite good. So I've never played a game of And then I played cricket after I left school and played club cricket. I've never played a game of cricket where I didn't try really hard to win and I've never played a game of football where I made any effort to win at all because I've never played in a team that had any time. Roy Keane had come to our school after two games he'd have given up as well you know I really feel that and but the highlight of my career came football career came in a house match and there was a boy who I think had sort of like learning difficulties and he he used to sort of he was like the school he was a kind of he was our football team sort of mascot and he used to run up and down the touchline he was a very sweet Scottish lad and he used to run up and down the touchline and he used to commentate on the game in the style of sort of Brian Butler or someone like that on Radio Two and we we're playing in a house match and it was particularly windy and I used to play on the right wing as because that was the easiest place to avoid the ball really and never have to head it if you're on the right wing which is a thing that I didn't like to do. And so, and I got the ball and it was about 30 yards out and I tried to hit a cross that would have gone on the penalty, but in the wind, was blown by the wind into the, sort of, into the top corner of the net. And behind me, I heard this boy, Archie, just shouted out, Oh, yes, Brazilian skills from the big man! <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I can't really top that.
1: <laughs> Make sure you never miss an issue of When Saturday Comes by subscribing today. Not only will you have the magazine delivered to your door and save on the shop price, but you'll also receive discounts on books and t-shirts, plus get free access to our complete digital archive, which stretches all the way back to issue 1 in 1986. Go to shop.wsc.co.uk for more information. Okay, it's time for the segment of the podcast named Record Breakers by no one in particular. Harry, which record from the wonderful 45football.com have you selected this
2: time out? I've gone for a song about tennis Borussia Berlin. I believe Andy has just told us that they play in purple. Or
3: or possibly Mauve. Mauve, I think. Which I think is. I I can never quite work out. from
2: the colours of the the Wimbledon Ball Boys in keeping with their (laughs) their tennis first name. And um, I, was sort of looking at, I was looking for a kind of punk, you know, being of that generation. And so I did, I did notice there was a Middlesbrough song about Gaza, which is actually to the tune of Jimmy Jimmy by The Undertones. But I think if you do anything about Gaza that's been recorded and then broadcast lately, you have make yourself slightly a hostage to Fortune, so I've avoided that one. And I've gone for this, which is it's by E-Blocks, and it's called Tay Bay Rocks. Um, older followers of punk rock may, may find the tune vaguely familiar, um, and it's a say, it's a say. One of the great things about it is, of course, it's only one minute and 25 seconds long. And I it's on the B side there's a song, it's an unavailable, called Herter Girl, which is uh, Herter Berlin, not "not Herta Girl. And, um, you know, so we, we, so we can only speculate what that's about, but I, I'm hoping that it's a love song about a tennis Borussia fan who's in love with a girl who supports Herter and loves her so much that he forgives her for that awful scene. It is interesting the lack of punk
1: football crossover in these records. The Although genres
2: you, have rarely stuck together. Are you sort of from York, are you? Mm. There was a, the Red Rhino Records, there was a, uh, which I hope would be on that. If I ever find it, I'm going to send it to, to the chap. Is, uh, there was the, the York Nutter Squad record, which is a kind of punk record about, about I think, probably a York group of um, likely lads of the territories. The called. Nomads, perhaps. So the York Nutter Squad. And I, you know, if you ever find that on Red Rhino, it's a winner. It's a hit.
3: Andy, what is your own musical selection this time? This is um, Sacré Marius by Marius Trezor, French international defender of the 70s and 80s, telling his story of how he came from Guadeloupe to play in the French League, um, played for Ajaccio originally, then Marseille and Bordeaux. Marius Trezor also um, the victim of one of the worst refereeing decisions in a World Cup final, 1978 Argentina-France. Um, at one point he loses his balance falls, his hand touches the ball completely ac- accidentally and the uh, referee gives a penalty to Argentina to win the game 2-1 scandalous, um, that happened before Marius um, recorded this record, I hope he would make some passing and uncomplimentary reference to the, uh, the referee Monsieur Dubonnet, I think it was of Switzerland um, had, it, had it happen before he made the record I think we should add as well that there was nothing suspicious about was Argentina's not, no, no, not victory at all.
2: in that World Cup for legal reasons I feel we should point that out
1: wasn't even the greatest moment of the 78 World Cup, which is surely the Zaire player running out of the that's, wall. That's 74. Oh, <laughs> there, you go. there
3: <laughs> you go. That wasn't the greatest moment of the 78 World Cup. <laughs> it would have been. Had he, If he'd
2: done that, that would have been... A, it's really weird. There was a Zaire player in the wall. Of the the Netherlands, of the Netherlands for some reason. (laughs) What was he doing there? He didn't know the world. Their World Cup was over in '74. He 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 thought it was still going on.
1: Selection this time is the Carlisle United record. Looking good. It does use the word "good" quite a lot, even attempting to rhyme it in the style of the co-op "good" with food. Um, actor voiceover by Tim Barker and the Carlisle United singers. is this ever heard during your visit to the majestic no, Brunton Park?
2: I'm, I'm a bit disappointed that they used to. They used to play. What does the fox say before the team ran out? That terrible sort of techno-y kind of Norwegian record. What does the fox say? Nick, 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 because the, the fox says nick, 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 for some reason. That's because like,
1: he's been watching Carlisle too long. He to,
2: "I don't know why." So they used to play that, and they've stopped playing it now. And they have this annoying announcer who says, "Let's hear some noise." North stand, West stand. Oh. And there's, and there's, and there's like three thousand Cumbrians in here. They don't make any noise other than sort of tutting. Home yeah. of the Cumbrian wave. Home of the Cumbrian wave, indeed. <laughs> They're the most miserable fans I've ever seen ever. They don't even get angry. They do nothing <laughs> at all. They don't even get angry. They've gone beyond. They've just like they're just they like sort of shit. they like people who are sheep farms just putting up with the weather. They just they just grimly get on with it.
4: Run the old one, too, and a shot letter go for United. Here we go, blue and white, and we're looking good, you'll be in for a fight, and we fight pretty good, getting gold in a job and we get those good. Looking good, we are united.
1: Over Christmas, I watched some of the Maradona in Mexico documentary. Have either of you seen any parts of that? I've only heard it. it's quite a sad
3: spectacle.
2: Mm. I saw about fifty minutes. Ago. I had watched the, the Maradona film that was made recently, and that was one of the weirdest things. Where I thought if if it was like you know when you're when you're playing school football and you have pick-up teams and the two captains pick, I thought I'm actually I would actually get picked ahead of Maradona. Now, who ever thought that would come about? You know. The people say, oh, we don't, oh, we'll have the skinny bloke there with the big nose, not the little fatch. <laughs> we don't want him. Because he, yeah, he's really. It come it's come really to pass. Come downhill, it is, it it it? is yeah, a, a sad
1: thing to watch. A fascinating documentary, but it made me start thinking back about all the different behind the scenes classics down the years. And I've watched the recent ones as well, obviously Sunderland and Netflix and all the rest. I noticed when Pochettino left Spurs, one of his complaints was about having a camera wafted in his face. One man who never complained about this, though, was what I think is the greatest example of this genre, which is the John Sitton Leighton Orient Club for a Fiverr documentary from the mid-1980s, which has the most spectacular swearing. It has Sitton himself offering his players out for a fight. And it just captures in time that period of football in between um, the old world and the new, I suppose. And I'm pretty sure as well that him and Chris Turner opened a couple of cans during one of the press conferences, which is a, a delight lesser scene now, with Yamaminos and the rest.
3: Also, as far as I'm aware, and I hope this is the case, the only documentary where an article for *When Saturday comes is ripped up on camera, <laughs> because someone had fa- faxed him a critical article about Orient. Um, and he rips it up and says to me, like, "Well, that's what they know."
2: It's great because his rant includes the thing where he sort of offers to fight two of the players. He says you can team up and you can bring a third and you can bring your dinner because you're yeah. going to need it. And it's impossible to. It sounds. It sounds like a kind of authentic East End thing, but yeah. the, you know, only thing. What does that mean? Bring your dinner? Was he going to? He's the fight's going to go on. The beating's going to go on so long. You're going to have to ha- pause for a meal. Was it a dinner each or just one dinner on one I mean, plate? You bring, bring your dinner. You bring your dinner and all. Bring your it? own like a BYOB restaurant. but That's, bring that's the whole right. Thing. I don't know what it'd be. Anyway, it's, it's a fantastic run. I
4: spoke to you the other day about a new contract. The possibility of a new contract. And all I'm saying to you is, when it pops out, you've got to be crafted. You've got to drift off. And when it pops out, you've got to establish possession for Orient. For a red shirt. And all I'm saying to you is get your body. In. That's all I'm saying to you. <coughs> and you're lucky that you got the free kick. Now, don't be coming back at me when I'm shouting at yeah. you above the crowd and above the next bed. <laughs> because well. I'll run this fucking football club until I'm told otherwise by the fucking circus upstairs. If you come back at me, you'll be off the field and you'll be following Terry down the road. If you come and see me tomorrow, you've got fortnight's notice because that performance is the straw that broke the camel's back, and that will be not not be tolerated in this dressing room while I'm in charge with Chris Turner. That is the fucking straw that broke the camel's back. That is typical fucking late Norrie.
2: Now you kind of think actually well, that's what you want from a fly on the wall football documentary is a ranting manager because of course Peter Reid in I think it's Premier Passions. Um, which Peter Reed was in, um, which, which for some reason the TV company took the approach of blanking out the swearing. So there's a half-time team talk with Peter Reed where it blanks out so many F words that basically only about every fourth word. So he says, Me! You! <laughs> and it... But, and it sounds like a man with the, either a really bad speech impediment or that sort of Norman Collier doing the thing where the microphone doesn't work. It's just, but he's only, as I say, literally, there's only a few words that come out. It's like, what, how is he, this man communicating with these people? The announcements on ScotRail by the
1: new robot voice are really like that, and everywhere you go, you think she's swearing, so she'll go, You are now approaching King It <laughs> makes it entertains her a lot. You're now in fucking Dumbarton. Makes it, a hell of a lot more. it does remind me of Bobby Saxton and Peter E. That one was narrated by. Gina McKee. Beautiful, you- beautiful voice and a and really, uh, really lovely documentary to look at, actually. I, I remember enjoying the uh, sight of the tractor going across the Rook of
2: Park Turf. I think what's good in that as well is the way, because Peter Reed is generally a pretty genial, because I've been to press conferences, he's generally a pretty genial man. And his, in that, in the particular rant that he does, is a game against Wimbledon. And his team talk before in, contains no swearing at all. He's entirely positive about how his team are. You're better at passing than them. You're better at this. You're better at that. They come in at half-time <laughs> two 0 down, and he's like, it's like it's like a man transformed. It's like he's he's drunk some potion, sweary potion. <laughs> and he just got, and he's like lost it completely. I,
4: I ain't got a problem about us winning the battle. Honestly, I think we'll win the battle. Any time you get it, get it down and play short, sharp football. You kill them. You kill them. So everything short and sharp, quick passing, which is a different class, are, and they won't be able to live with you. And if you're in trouble in the squeezing, stay on side, diags down the side. All right. all right, come on, let's go. All right. All right. You still win them tackles, though? Holy, race. Come on, son, a bit of magic, come on. The They've got f-ing more on the f-ing day, so f-ing get on with it. Tell you what that is. men against boys all over the park weak as piss they are.
3: Weak as piss. I remember somebody said they'd um, played for Watford at youth level or at, when they were sixteen or so, and Graham Taylor came in at half-time to ch- talk to players and surprisingly was pretty similar he mm. wasn't expecting Graham Taylor to be full of um, expletives with the young players but apparently he was of course another classic documentary mm. the Graham Taylor um, England manager documentary loads of people have their favourite bits from that um, him uh, shouting Colton several times hit les <laughs> is another one um, the bit where he says he talks about the, the pressures of the job and this is in a conversation later with somebody says you know I wake up in the morning my pyjamas are wet through and there's also the bit, the chatty, almost Alan Bennett-esque bit when he's standing on the touchline during the Holland-England game when he's already complained um, to the fourth official about the refereeing and he says to the linesman, I was just saying to your friend here, that referee's cost me my job. It's, it's, that, Koeman, it's that yeah, it's to Coom your friend here, off, they're yeah. all mates and you're just kind of chatting like on the bar of the Rovers return kind of thing.
2: I think that's one of those things. Where I, when I first saw it, I thought it was really funny and then yeah, now, yeah. when I watched it again, someone gave me—I I think it's possibly a sort of uh, illegally downloaded DVD of it—and and, uh, possibly not. And um, when I watched it now, I sort of—I I think probably because of the way the way that we came to see Graham Taylor later, I sort of felt really—I found it quite kind of tragic. Yeah. Because he's a man who, who like most of us, he wants to be liked, and actually, you can't be the England manager. And want everyone to like you because basically you know, loads of people are going to hate you. And to see someone like him, who is a likable, a likable, nice, decent man, trying to maintain, you know, trying to get people to sort of be to like him, is really kind of is sort of painful to watch, isn't it? I think He's, he was
3: also treated very brutally by the the, the press, and for some reason, um, even now, I think. Um, some football journalists think that the, the the turnip headline about him was is is really funny, and it's not it's, it's just crap, you know. Yeah. It because they they were playing Sweden that were it was Swedes and turnips, but it was never funny. So so it, it seems it's this classic newspaper back page, but it's really not. In fact, takes
1: some of them to task during one of the press conference, is not he? Telling is it Rob Rob to cheer up. Rob I Hughes, I think it's Rob Hughes, isn't it? Yeah, I think
2: it's Rob Hughes. Rob Shepherd. Rob from Shepherd. From, yeah. I'm, oh, yeah I'm not sure they're who he wrote here. for. Yeah, yeah. Come it's, on, raise yourself! Yeah, yeah, get a smile on your face. Yeah, but I think that's part of his thing that he wants everyone to say, like he sort of like yeah. feels that everyone should like him, and they just don't, you know. But I mean, he does. It still, it is there's still comical elements. Yes, can we yeah. not knock it? Yeah. A, the classic phrase, <laughs> which sums up really English football from uh, you know, a, a long, long period. Doesn't Phil
3: Neal, when Graham's discussing a substitution, they're sat on the bench, and Phil Neal says, "Oh, bold, bold choice." That, that's, that's a, what that's you want sort, from your assistant
2: that, that's the sort of thing that's, that, that a kind of publisher says yeah. to you as well when you go to them with a book like, bold, bold idea but you know that that means that they're not going to take it but the other thing is that Laurie, Laurie was another of his assistants is yeah. that gradually they seem to move further away from him don't yeah. they like some kind of Shakespearean like a sort of theatre director goes, what would be really good is to show the fact that they don't is we'll just gradually move you further away across the stage and yeah. that's what they do they're literally like shifting away from him as they
3: see more and more failure attacks somebody it's, pointed out that's what Terry Venables did. Steve McLaren brought Terry Venables in as an advisor when it, when he was England manager and Terry Venables noticeably moved further away from McLaren England games as, as the, the <laughs> results go especially <laughs> leading up to that game in Croatia suddenly he's, he sat in the stands where well, the team were well, That well, well, That's on the bench. quite a
2: good documentary about Terry Venables at Barcelona with Gary Lineker.
3: Yes, yeah.
2: And uh, Terry Venables just speaking Spanish with in a Cockney accent, which I always really like That he speaks. So they say, oh, he speaks fluent Spanish, and it's just you can tell that he's a Cockney even through his Spanish, which I like. You know, I like that idea of just like not 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 really trying too hard.
1: You've been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Please have a think about supporting us on patreon.com slash when Saturday comes, which will give you access to bonus podcast material and other goodies. And please do join me, Andy and Harry again next time for more vital, topical and half-decent chatter.